Welcome to the Radiant Church Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Grab a Bible or open up your favorite Bible app as we get into God's Word together. Hey, good morning, family. Good morning, good morning. And grab your Bibles. I hope you have them with you or have them on you. Turn them on, flip them open. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7 today. Luke chapter 7. Um, Luke, the author of this gospel, has been slowly building the case that Jesus is Savior, but he's also heralding this new age, this new kingdom, this new way of seeing the world and interacting with God. And so he made the announcement in the first few chapters. He gave us his mission statement in chapters 3 and 4 and chapters 5 all the way through chapter 9, the end of chapter 8. He's going to give us story after story about who God really is in Jesus the power and the majesty that he has to cast out demons, to command the waves, the seas, and the wind. And in this particular passage today, we're not just going to see the power of God on display, but we're going to see the proper response to Jesus as King. We've been doing a survey through the book of Luke, and so we're not going to cover just the whole chapter. I really want to cover the bookends of this chapter, the the first story, the last story, and right there in the middle, the warning that Luke gives us. Let me read just verses 9 and 10, and then I want to pray for us. Chapter 7, verse 9 says, Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Today I want to talk for just a moment about the difference between a kingdom faith and a counterfeit faith. A kingdom faith and a counterfeit faith. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I am in desperate need of your help in this moment. Would you give me the power and the clarity, God, to say, thus saith the Lord, no more and no less. God, I pray for clarity of mind, courage of speech, and compassion of heart. God, would you make your word come alive to all of us, that it would do more than come through the words of a mere man. But God, would your word go forth to accomplish your perfect purposes? Encouraging, challenging, convicting, reforming us all. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And God's people said, amen and amen, amen. A kingdom faith and a counterfeit faith. How many people have seen the old school movie? Might be dating just a little bit here. Um, Catch me if you can. Anybody seen that movie? Amen. A few folks, a few fans. Um, It's a really incredible story uh, based on true events about a master counterfeiter uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, He's being chased by an FBI agent throughout the whole movie. And what makes this movie so interesting is he's a brilliant person. Um, He is a pilot. He passes the bar exam. He prints his own money. Um, He is able to counterfeit and walk into and pretend to be just about anybody. Um, Early, he starts on that he walks into his classroom and he's supposed to be a student. But in a moment, he says, I'm going to be the teacher. And that began his career of counterfeiting. And eventually, as the story goes, he gets caught by the FBI agent pursuing him. But he's so talented at what he does. He ends up working for the FBI to find lesser skilled counterfeiters than himself And it's interesting because he's able to fool so many people. 
I mean, I was fooled watching the movie and I knew he was lying, but he was so good at what he was doing. He was so convincing. The money that he printed was so authentic and looked so real. The badges that he made himself to become a pilot and actually fly a plane looked so real. It looked like the real thing and it fooled the average person. And that's oftentimes the trouble that we run into is counterfeits look real. They have so many of the markings of a genuine article that it's hard to tell the difference. And so it is with faith. You see, there is a genuine biblical faith, a kingdom faith, and I'm not creating a new type of faith. I'm just saying the the faith that we find in the Bible, the faith that we're going to see in these passages. And there is a counterfeit faith, a faith that bears so many of the markers of what it means to believe in Jesus. And yet it is not genuine faith. Let's see the story that we find ourselves at the beginning of the chapter. Chapter 7, verse 1, when he had concluded saying all these to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him, saying earnestly, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and was building and has built our synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does this. Pause for just a moment. What's happening A centurion um, leader, a leader of the army, probably not the Roman army. Um, The Romans didn't occupy Galilee until about 44 AD. And so this was probably somebody under Herod's rule and reign. And so, but he was a commander of soldiers, a man with power, with influence, with actual power, not just authority, but actual power to command soldiers. And yet he seemed to be a God fearer, um, which wasn't a Gentile who had converted to Judaism. That would become a, like a proselyte, but he's a God-fearer, somebody who hasn't converted to Judaism, but was soft-hearted towards it, believed maybe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and had done helpful and mighty things, giving financially to build a synagogue and then loving the people. And yet his servant became sick one day, and he heard about Jesus and said, I care for this man. I know Jesus is a man who can heal And so he doesn't go himself, he sends others. Now, for the Bible scholars in the room, you might be saying, well, hold up, Matthew 8 tells the same story, and it says that the centurion man went to Jesus and he had this conversation face-to-face. Don't get caught up on that. Matthew, once again, is abbreviating the story. Um, This is the same event. So he sends the centurion. Centurion, he sends the elders of the Jewish congregation in his area. Once again, those aren't the older folks. Those are the people with power and authority, elders. And he says, hey, would you go get Jesus for me? I'm not worthy to come to him, but would you go get him for me? And then when Jesus says, okay, I'll come, and is about to enter the house to do the thing that was asked of him, the centurion servant stopped him once again and said, no, Jesus, you can't come in. Now, this wasn't him pushing Jesus away. That was him honoring Jesus because he knew for a Jew to enter into the house and dwelling of a Gentile, that would make the Jewish person ceremonially unclean. And he says, I know I'm a Gentile. I know I'm not worthy of your presence in my home, but I also understand how authority works. From right there, you can heal my servant. And then Jesus says something that's pretty interesting in verse 9. It says, Jesus heard this and was amazed at him and turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. 
Now, at first glance, it's a, it's a shocking admission that this Gentile, this outsider, has have found faith in Jesus, and that's worth celebrating and actually would a, be a prelude to the Gentile mission altogether. But is this fair what Jesus says? He says, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. Who does Jesus most likely have with him in this moment? His disciples. The one that he named apostles just a few moments earlier. We saw that in the last chapter. So people who had left everything they had, fishermen who walked away from the boats, a tax collector who walked away from his booth, people who walked away from their family to follow Jesus. And yet this centurion leader, Jesus says about him, I have not found faith like this in all of Israel. Is that fair to all those who'd given up what seems to be much to follow Jesus? And the reason I want to spend just a little bit of time on this first story, because I believe this gets to the heart of the matter of what kingdom faith is versus a counterfeit faith. If you grew up in and around church, you probably heard a lot about faith. I mean, there was faith conferences, books on faith, how to grow your faith, how to, how to have more faith, all these other things. And there's nothing wrong inherently with that, but I think it misses the point. Um, hopefully, as you've read and studied the scriptures, you've realized that it's not about how much faith you have, but it's whether you have faith in the right person or thing or not. So you can believe something sincerely and be sincerely wrong. Those who sit next to me in the first service, um, you may have heard me singing, Amen. I believe in my heart that I'm giving a joyful nose to the Lord. But that's not true, amen? That is not true. It is woefully untrue. Even though I believe something to be genuine and legitimate, it does not change the reality. And so how much faith you have does not matter as much as if you have faith in the right thing. And so the object of our faith, being Jesus, is actually more important than how much faith we have. It's not about growing your faith. It's about shifting the foundation of your faith from your righteousness to the righteousness of Jesus, from your works to the works of Jesus, from your performance to Jesus's life. But that's not all that the word of God would have to say about our faith, although that in and of itself is shocking that the foundation of our faith is not our faith, but Jesus. But Jesus is also what I believe is found in chapter seven here, that Jesus is not only the object of our faith, He's the motivation behind our faith. Why did Jesus look at the faith of the centurion man, a man who by all intents and purposes is not even a follower of Yahweh God, and say, this faith I have never seen before? He marveled at this man, the Scripture says. What about the centurion's faith made Jesus stop and pause and give recognition And I think it's found in the way that they presented even this request to heal the servant. Did you hear how the elders, the religious leaders and the Jewish elders presented the case to Jesus? Did you catch it? Verse four, when they reached Jesus, talking about the elders, they pleaded with Jesus earnestly saying, heal the servant. Why? Because he is worthy for you to grant this. Why? Because he loves our nation and has built our synagogues. You see, the elders and the religious leaders came to Jesus with the merit and the performance of the centurion. But is that what the centurion was thinking? No. He said, God, I'm not even worthy to come ask you for this. I'm not worthy for you to be in my home. I just know that you can, but you're not obligated to anything. I'm not entitled to anything. I'm coming humbly asking. 
And I believe this gets closer to the heart of kingdom faith, not just when we believe in Jesus, but we believe in Jesus because of Jesus. Let me get real practical for just a second. When have you been the most disappointed in God? Think about it. There's a time. You prayed for the thing that you should pray for. You did all the things that you should have done, and God did not answer that prayer. God did not give you that thing. God withheld what seemed to be a good thing from you. And in those moments, we realize that maybe the reason I love Jesus is because he's king, yes, but also because I feel like I'm entitled to something. I feel like I have earned something. God, why am I going through hard things? I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing all the right things. Shouldn't life be easier for me? Shouldn't you answer my prayers a little quicker than the person next door? You see, all of us have this mixture of coming to Jesus for Jesus and coming to Jesus for what Jesus can do for us. And only in those moments where he doesn't do for us does that expose in our hearts. And I believe the reason that Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion, because he didn't demand anything from God, he didn't expect anything God, but he believed that God could do something. And that's why he said, I haven't found this faith in all of Israel, because we don't know this yet according to the story, but the disciples who had given up everything to follow Jesus, they're going to leave Jesus. Why? Because he failed them. How could you die, God? You're supposed to be our conquering hero. You're supposed to throw off the shackles of Roman rule and oppression. Why are you on a cross? That's why they asked, Lord, when you are in your kingdom, give us thrones to the right and to the left, because they didn't get it. Yes, they were following Jesus because he was the Son of Man, the Messiah, the rock, but also hoping that Jesus would do all the things that they felt like they deserved for him to do. And so this is a little Holy Spirit imagination right here because the Scriptures doesn't say, but I believe that Jesus marveled at the faith of Centurion because it was a pure kingdom faith that, God, you are who you are. And whether you heal this servant or not, I believe you are still who you are. Skip to the end of the chapter really quick. Let me, pray, let me prove this to you some more. Starting in verse 36, going to the end of the chapter, there's another story. Um, one of the Pharisees had invited um, Jesus over and all of his disciples over to a meal. And as they're reclining, they're just doing what they, what they do. And in walks a woman who we don't know yet, but we'll find out is a notorious sinner. Now, it doesn't say what that is, but you can imagine notorious sinner walks in while Jesus and his disciples and some Pharisees were eating. And I just imagine she walking straight to Jesus. And this is what happens. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping and began to wash his feet, verse 38, with her tears. And she wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. In walks this woman who is known in the community as a sinner, and she kneels before Jesus, literally using the tears that are falling down her face to wash her feet and the hair that is on her head to dry Jesus' feet. And look at the response in verse 39 from the Pharisee in the room. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, talking about Jesus, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. Now, y'all, I'm not saying Jesus is petty. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's some petty tendencies in the scriptures if you see it. Because look what happens next. The man, the Pharisee mumbled under his breath or thought to himself, but it wasn't a verbal statement, but he just looked at Jesus and said, if he really was who he claimed to be, he would know not to let this woman touch him. That's what he's saying. 
Jesus doesn't look at the Pharisee who said this, but looks at Simon Peter, one of the disciples, ignoring what the Pharisee had, had mumbled under his breath and turns to Simon and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And I can imagine that Simon be like, what? Don't put me in this. Like, <laughs> it's between you and him, Jesus. He's like, say it, teacher. He tells a story. A creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, I love this imagery. He's still talking to Simon, but he turns his glance to the woman. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her sins are many, but they have been forgiven. And that's why she loved much. But the one who was forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And listen again, verse 50. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What demonstration of faith do we have? We don't have a recorded of a sinner's prayer. Uh, we don't have her proclaiming that Jesus is a one true God and she's a sinner. And those who believe in Jesus will raise from the dead. She didn't say anything that we know of. All she did was fall at the feet of Jesus and weep and wash and anoint him. And yet Jesus responded to that action by saying, your faith has saved you. He looked at the centurion and marveled at his faith. He looks at this woman and says, your faith has saved you. What does Jesus know about faith that we don't? I believe it's the same thing, that this woman wasn't concerned about what she looked like, how she appeared, whether she would be accepted or not in a culture and in a time where women couldn't really be even in the same room as men, let alone walking in and falling at the feet of Jesus, a supposedly respected teacher. And this Pharisee is watching this happen and says, this man doesn't know who this is. You see, this woman had a faith, and this centurion had a faith that gets us to the closer definition of what faith is. So many of us understand faith to be what we believe, and that's partly true. But if it just stays in belief, it's not true kingdom faith. If it doesn't drive action, drive worship, drive our participation in the kingdom of God, it's not kingdom faith. I, and I believe the Bible would say that is a counterfeit faith. You see, after Jesus had performed another miracle of raising a widow's son to life, John the Baptist sent his disciples in verses 18 through 35. John the Baptist sent his disciples asking Jesus, hey, are you the one? Are you the Messiah that whom we should be looking for? Jesus said, look around. And he almost verbatim quoted what his mission statement was in Luke chapter 4, that the eyes of the blind are open, the lepers are healed, the gospel is being preached to the poor. And after his, John's messengers left, he began to talk, Jesus. And he says, basically, I believe the question is, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? You see, when, G, when John the Baptist was here in verse 31... 
To whom shall I compare this people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to each other. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep for John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. A wisdom is shown in the fruit. Jesus is saying that there's a warning here by asking the question, what do you want from me? John the Baptist came and obeyed all the rules and did all things and lived a life of, of stoic reclusion, proclaiming to Jesus. And you said that he was demon possessed. I come and, and I'm coming to the sick. I'm coming to those who need a savior. And you say, I'm a drunkard and a glutton. What do you want from me? And it's not because the Pharisees were lacking information. They were Pharisees because they were teachers and students of the religious law. Some of them had learned to read by memorizing the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so they knew who the Messiah should be. They believed all the right things or so they thought, and yet they missed Jesus completely. Look at verse 30. Sorry, verse 29 and 30. When all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. So the people who knew the most were rejecting outright the Savior come among them. What does that say to us today? On the bookends of this chapter, we see examples of saving, redeeming, marvelous faith. And in the middle, we see people with all the right information, and yet the Son of Man stands before them and they reject him. What is a counterfeit faith. A kingdom faith is a faith that takes that belief and it motivates us and moves us to action. What is a counterfeit faith? Let me make it present day for a little bit. A counterfeit faith is a faith that believes in Jesus but doesn't obey Jesus. A counterfeit faith is a faith that defends Christianity but doesn't live it out. A counterfeit faith is Defending Jesus without submitting to Jesus. It's proclaiming Jesus without surrendering to Jesus. It's all the forms of godliness, but none of the power thereof. That's what a counterfeit faith is. And that's why Jesus said, you are a hard-hearted generation. Because you know, but you don't do. And those who don't know the Gentile and the notorious sinner, they're shown to have a genuine faith because they do. Family, there is a temptation towards a counterfeit faith because it's easier. It is. I'll be honest with you. It's easier to fight about Christianity than it is to submit to Jesus as king. It's easier to defend Christianity than to live as if he's king. It really is. It's easier to start fights on Facebooks about how people are wrong and going to hell than it is to live like you are a redeemed child of God called to love your neighbor and give truth to your neighbor. And so there's the temptation between the faith of the centurion and the faith of the notorious sinner and the faith of the religious leaders. In all of us, there's this tension. But at some point, family, we have got to stop making excuses and start submitting to Jesus as king. I'm saying this to you and to me. There is always a reason why an area of our lives is not yet submitted to Jesus as king. There's always going to be a reason. 
If I can just get past this season of life, if I can just straighten this out, if I can just settle things down here, then I will give Jesus that which he wants. And then I will take away the things that Jesus is calling me to take away. And then I'll be ready to give everything over once things get a little bit calmer, once things get a little bit better. But I love the urgency of this woman who walked straight into a room full of men, knowing that she would be seen as a sinner and an outsider and said, no, but Jesus is close. I got to get to him. And here Jesus is calling us, family, closer, deeper. Jesus does not need a defense attorney. He needs people who are submitted to his rule and to his, rule and to his reign. We don't have to defend Christianity as much as embody Christianity. We don't have to defend Jesus. He's calling us to submit to Jesus. Because that's what the kings command. That's what a kingdom is people serving a king. And that's why Jesus would marvel at the faith of the centurion, because it's pure. It says, I'm coming to Jesus for Jesus. That's why Jesus said, the the woman who was weeping, your faith has saved you, because it went from belief to action, to worship, to devotion. And in the middle, right here in this chapter, he gives this warning to an unresponsive generation that says, you know so much, and yet you're never satisfied. You're never ready to obey. For John the Baptist, you called him demon-possessed. For me, you say, I'm a drunken and glutton. You always have an excuse to not bend the knee and call me Jesus as Lord. And so what area in your life have you been resisting Jesus' authority because you've got a good reason? What area in my life do I have a really good reason to tell God no? And I would say, let the Holy Spirit speak in that area And even through weeping, through crying, through frustration, let it go, y'all. Let the Lord have all of you. Because here's the theme here. He heals a widow's son. He heals a Gentile servant. He heals a notorious sinner's sins and forgives her. What's the common theme in all those people who experience God's power? They were on the outside. They didn't think much of their own righteousness. They knew they were sinners. They knew they needed help. That's who God has come to save, and that's who we are called to as well. There's an old saying, I'm in here. Part of the reason why our faith isn't always a kingdom faith, but a counterfeit faith is because we come to Jesus, not for Jesus, but because of what he could do for us. Part of the reason is we don't get the last story in this chapter. Remember the story of the man who owed 50 denarii and the one who owed 500? See, if we're honest, there's some who know that they owed God 500. They know they owed God a great deal of sin, a debt. Their lives were a mess, and the whole world could testify of such. But there are some who believe that they weren't all that bad. They believe that they are the one who owed only 50, and so they were forgiven little, and so they love little. Let me just give a word of encouragement. I know some of you... Um, didn't have the same testimony and story as everyone else. And that's okay. But all of us were forgiven much. And so all of us are called to love much. Just because your sins were less visible or your sins were more socially acceptable does not mean we did not all owe God an eternal weight of debt because of our sins. I remember the old folks in the church used to say something like, Lord, if you don't do nothing else for me, you've already done enough. Why do they say that? Lord, if you don't answer this prayer, that's okay. You're still God. Why do they say that? 
God, if you don't come through this time, you are still good and still God. Why would they say that? Because they know that their sins have been forgiven and that's enough. So yes, God, you've given great promises and I'm going to pray for those things. God, you've given us great assurance and so I'm going to hold on to those things. But even if you disappoint me, you don't disappoint me because you're still my savior. You've still forgiven me of much. And so a kingdom faith and a counterfeit faith may look the same, but when you are frustrated and when God disappoints you, the truth is coming out. Because a kingdom faith will say, God, I'm, I'm hurting. God, I thought you would have come through. God, I thought you would have moved by now, but you didn't. But God, you have already been so good to me. So I'm going to hold on. A counterfeit, counterfeit faith in that moment will say, God, let me down. He's disappointed me, and so I'm done. Some of us know people in our lives that that's their story. God let them down at some point in time and they walked away from faith because they didn't come to God for God. They came to God for themselves. And when God disappointed them, they were done with God. And so as we wrestle with that in ourselves, let's allow the Holy Spirit to peer deep down into our hearts and say, God, is there any impure motive in my heart? Reveal that now, not in the season of testing, Reveal it now, Father. If there's any area of my life that I have not yet given you free reign, reveal it now. Because that's what God is calling us to be as a kingdom people. We love the, the activity of the kingdom, the, the daycare, the, the counseling, and the activity of the kingdom. But don't forget that the activity doesn't replace the character of the kingdom people. People who live lives joyfully submitted to a king who is worthy of worship. Let me pray. Thank you for joining our family in North Charleston as we heard God's word preached today. We would love to connect with you. You can find us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Send us a message to learn more about what Radiant Church is doing or support the vision of Radiant Church at radiantcharleston.com giving.